Hello, welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. We'll bring you, as ever, exclusive and original stories and interviews and offer agenda-setting insight from inside the game from David and writers from across The Athletic. Coming up today, we'll examine the current setup at Chelsea under Roman Abramovich, discuss what a potential takeover at Newcastle could mean for the Premier League. And with it being the final week of the transfer window, David, you have your notebook with you this week. It shows it must be serious business. Very, very serious. Teasers with a couple of transfer stories we'll talk about later. I'm going to give you more than a couple. We're going to talk about our old friend Christoph Piontek, Edinson Cavani, um, the favourite of all Manchester United fans, Bruno Fernandes, Pablo Marie possibly going to Arsenal, um, a striker that Manchester United have shown some, some interest in that has not been reported so far, but it's come to nothing, Christian Eriksen, Steven Bergwijn, Ronaldo Vieira and Olivier Giroud among others. The Onstein Chapman podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite betting company. It's West Ham v Liverpool this Wednesday. Are Liverpool going to continue their march to the title or could the Hammers throw a spanner in the works? With Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to build your own personalised bet. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. So coming up, we'll look at the uh, loan system. We'll talk Jean-Kevin Augustin. Uh, we'll talk Tottenham maybe as well. And of course, our old favourite Piontek. But let's start with Chelsea. Liam Toomey's in the studio who covers Chelsea for The Athletic. Um, do you think they're still getting their heads around the fact that they aren't under a transfer ban? Well, I think they actually expected to be in this position for several months. I think they were priming themselves to be able to do business in January. But planning to do business in January and doing business in January are two very different things. And I think they found the reality of this market in a way that a lot of other clubs have, which is that your top targets aren't particularly available. And even the short-term fixes, you know, we there's been lots of talk about Edinson Cavani in the last week or so, uh, come at a, a pretty high price, especially when you're so clearly deficient in certain areas on the pitch, as Frank Lampard has been saying, at every possible opportunity they need goals and creation. He's right in that way to, to maybe put a little bit of pressure on, on Chelsea to get business done, but it doesn't change the reality that, that there isn't a lot out there for, the, for them to do at the moment. So there are a few things to come out of that. The, the first being, they're just like most of the other clubs at this stage. They have planned to be able to buy and sell if they want in the trans- January transfer window. But like most of the others, it is now impossible to get who you want. Yeah, absolutely. And, and without getting who you want, it's difficult to be able to sanction too many sales either. You know, Chelsea squad... I think it's bigger than people maybe thought it would be going into the season, particularly with the emergence of this young core. But it's still not so big that they can afford to let three or four players go unless they have players come in, coming in that will significantly strengthen them. And Lampard would say the plus is that he knows exactly the area that he wants. He wants a forward, but there aren't that many that tick all of Chelsea's boxes and that could provide realistic cover for Tammy Abraham right now. Take us behind the scenes, if you can, because this is probably one of the most difficult clubs I would suggest <laughs> to go behind the scenes at because of Roman Abramovich and the genu- general silence from him. But if you go behind the scenes as best as you can, how how does the transfer policy work at Chelsea? With a new head coach now, who is responsible for the ins and the outs? Sure, so it's maybe 
not quite as formal as a transfer committee, but there are several people with a seat at the table. You know, Marina Granovskaya is the deal maker in chief. She's the one talking to the agents and, and once a target is decided, she's the one in charge of getting that deal done or seeing whether it's viable. But the coach will always have a say. You know, that's why Chelsea ended up spending a lot of money on Jorginho last summer, who was very much a Sarri target rather than a long-term club target. There will also be the head of international scouting, Scott McLaughlin, who who basically heads up the recruitment network. Um, so they will be in charge of bringing the club's long-term targets to the table. You know, you've seen them linked to someone like Moussa Dembele. He's someone they were looking at when he was at Fulham as a teenager and, and they were monitoring at Celtic as well. So um, he's also there. Petr Cech, technical and performance advisor, very vague title. He... He kind of advises across all the different departments, but he definitely makes recommendations in terms of transfers as well. Emanalo would have his own network of contacts. He would have his own relationships with agents um, and he would feed into the, the structure that way. Whereas Czech is very much learning on the job, really, but he's also basically in charge of bringing all the different football departments of the club together. And part of that will be giving his opinion. And then financially, what constraints do they have to work under at Chelsea? Given given financial fair play, given that they've had a huge turnover of staff in recent years, whether it be Conte and his staff or Sarri and his staff, and their reliance on a hugely generous owner. So financially, where do they sit within a transfer market? Sure. So right now, I think they're in a pretty strong position because they're back in the Champions League this season and they, they effectively sat out their full participation in the last two windows. We know they signed Pulisic and Kovacic, but they certainly didn't spend as much as they would have done. But having said that, they posted the largest pre-tax loss since 2005 um, for the last financial year, which shows how much they need Champions League football for their broader model. There's an inclination to wait to the summer to do the biggest deals anyway, aside from the fact that the biggest deals aren't really viable in January but if an opportunity became available to 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 sign a, a big target the money would be there but uh, but they, they they do have backing but a lot also depends on whether they get top 4 this season because you you wrote a, a piece with Matt Slater on the Athletic that just highlighted the importance of Champions League football for Chelsea so many clubs talk about you know needing it having to make the top 4 but for Chelsea maybe out of all of the top 6 it appears more crucial for Chelsea than any of the other five. Would that be fair? Yeah, and in short, because they have the smallest stadium. That's the one area in which you could say Roman Abramovich's backing has uh, has not been where it needs to be for Chelsea as a club recently because the stadium development is on hold. Um, and that's the one area that could really be a game changer for Chelsea going forward because as much as their broadcast income, their commercial income can go up or down depending on whether they're a Champions League club, their match day income is hard capped essentially by Stamford Bridge being what it is. And so that means that they, they, in the long term they are limited and they do need Champions League football to make up that shortfall because FFP is an issue. If the clubs didn't have to be FFP compliant, there's every indication Abramovich will continue to pour a load of money in, but he can't, there's limits to how much he can do that. Can I just ask a question on um, Chelsea's new sponsorship deal? Mm. Normally with these top Premier League clubs signing new shirt deals, they we talk about a big uplift in their revenues that's going to go towards transfers, etc. That didn't seem to be the case in terms of the discourse and narrative around this new deal for Chelsea last week. Yeah, from what I've been told, the new deal with three is worth... It's comparable in terms of value to the deal they had with Yokohama, which was £40 million per year. 
um, which may come as a little bit as a surprise to some fans who are expecting a significant yeah. rise. But I think um, I think not just Chelsea. I think a few of the clubs have experienced a slightly more difficult sponsor market. If you're not Liverpool or Manchester City and guaranteed to be in the Champions League, or you're the financial powerhouse that United are. I think sponsors are a little bit wary of tying themselves into really long-term deals because it's six into four in those Champions League places. And I think that's why you've seen this three deal is a three-year deal so that they can reassess. And I think Chelsea can also reassess, which they have done pretty aggressively with all their sponsorships. If they see a better offer out there, they'll go for it. Bearing in mind, nobody can answer this question. How would you judge whether Roman Abramovich is happy at Chelsea or not? As in, as in, there are other people or there are clues that you would follow, because you can't talk to him, to suggest whether he is happy with how things are at the club and the future of the club. So there are a couple of ways you can go about this. You can talk to people that talk to him and you can go on what they say and presume they're, they're being entirely truthful with you. and Or you can judge by the actions that you can see. And, um, you know, every time you speak to people at Chelsea, the line is unrelentingly that he is as committed as ever. Um, every time there's rumours of a sale, that's the line that comes out. But more importantly, I think, is when you look at the actions and you look at the financial results from last year and he personally poured in £247 million into the club to, to basically cover the shortfall from a lack of Champions League revenue and, and, and maybe a more difficult financial year. And I think that says more than anything, really, that he remains committed to Chelsea being an elite club for now and the foreseeable future. Then you look also, I think, at the the campaign that they're mounting against anti-Semitism, while not directly relevant to the football operation, it's something that Brownrich has been passionate about for a long time. And the fact that he's now made Chelsea the platform for that work arguably makes owning Chelsea even more important to him than it's ever been. So I think he wants to build a, a long-lasting culture at Chelsea, and I think we're already seeing that. Are we still thinking that Jadon Sancho might be a target for them in the summer? Where are we at with that? The Sancho camp are aware that Chelsea are interested, um, and we have mentioned before on this podcast that he grew up as a Chelsea supporter. He would appear to be ideal for them, but it's going to be a huge amount of money for whoever Sancho decides to join. And as Liam quite rightly points out, there's no guarantee that Chelsea will be able to or want to sanction that level of spending under both FFP rules and their sort of um, circumstances at that point in time. And you would think he would want to play Champions League football too. And this is linked with Chelsea as well, just moving on from permanent transfers. But you've written today about potential changes to the loan system. Yeah, well, FIFA are meeting uh, today, Monday. Their task force that has been in, in charge of the process of overhauling the loan system, the agent system and various other areas are getting together for their latest discussion. They meet every couple of months. And these particular rules around the loan system have been proposed for quite some time now, deliberated over. And it's going to look like this. For Premier League loans, that's not going to change. You can only have two loans at any one time and you can't have loans for more than one loan from the same club. Overseas, there was no limit previously. There is now going to be a limit and that's going to have pretty drastic implications for some clubs. Age 22 or over, you can only have a maximum of six loans coming in and six loans going out. So for the likes of Chelsea, Watford, Wolves, Brighton, they're going to have to sort their squads out and, and, and their loan pool. You also will not be able to have 
had more than three loans between two clubs. And you might think back to Chelsea's relationship with Vitesse Arnhem in the past and how that could be affected. The aim of this, uh, FIFA says, is to stop clubs from hoarding players and also stop clubs from using the loan system for commercial exploitation to uh, basically create a side business, which is what many have accused Chelsea and Manchester City of doing. These proposals are going to be drafted in concrete form and come into force from next season. It'll be a gradual introduction. Initially, it'll be eight loans in and eight loans out, then seven and seven and then six and six over the next three years. And that's internationally? That's so, internationally. So so in some ways, whilst this might be a, a nightmare, well, not a nightmare, but a problem for a t- elite Premier League club who like to send their players out now to La Liga or the Bundesliga or you know maybe Serie A as well to get international experience only six of their squad could go out internationally but it might be good for championship or league 1 who want more players from the big clubs to come and play for them the key thing here is that that point about it being players of 22 and over so under 21s under these proposals will be exempt from this entirely and that means that clubs can still do what they want to do uh, with regards to their young players. There is a bit of a problem because uh, a number of clubs, Liverpool included, have young players who are developing a bit later, like goalkeepers, for example, and also centre-halves. One example of that is Nat Phillips, who of course came back, helped uh, Liverpool over the festive period and, uh, and has now gone back out on loan. Well, he's 23, and so he would take one of their six places under the FIFA proposals, despite the fact that they're not trying to exploit any commercial situation. They're just trying to develop that particular player, and they don't think he should fall into that bracket. And therefore, uh, Liverpool are are among the clubs that will be lobbying at this meeting on Monday to say raise that age from under 21 to under 23 and then after that it's fair game. This is going to come in from next season and there's going to be a significant change which is particularly interesting because look at the transfer window we're in now. I don't know the exact percentage but the vast majority of the deals that clubs are looking to do are loaning players because of what Liam talks about it's very difficult to be signing these players on a permanent basis because the fees are just so high now. Uh, yes and but of course you don't have to loan players abroad you can look to develop links within the English football and Welsh football pyramid appropriately because that's what Chelsea are are arguably looking to do at the moment. Yeah, so Stuart James and I wrote about this um, last week in light of the Conor Gallagher move to Swansea and, and he joined Mark Gurhey, who was another Chelsea youngster who, who went to the south of Wales. And that is founded mainly on Steve Cooper, who won the World Cup with England under-17s in, in India in 2017, managing Gurhey and Gallagher. So it's all about those personal relationships really with those players, but also with key members of Chelsea's academy staff and uh, and you know that loaning I think is about trust and it's always about at least developmental loans are all about trust and those personal relationships and Chelsea are, are looking at it at the moment and in terms of as long as Steve Cooper is at Swansea they will have a leg up to get some of the very best academy prospects coming out of Cobham in the years to come. Although, obviously, if they get promoted, as you mentioned, they can't have more than one player on, lo- on loan from Chelsea. So there are 
potential limitations to that relationship, but that's just an example of the kind of thing that, that could be done. Uh, Newcastle, uh, the new Leeds striker, Piontek, and various other transfer stories to come. But this athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. Uh, fortunately, David has actually just done exactly what I'm about to read you which is a good job because you've worn that jumper for the last three podcasts on the trot I wore a different one last no, week no you didn't you said you've the same wore, thing no you've worn that jumper it's exactly the, or unless you have two jumpers that are exactly the same it's my lucky jumper I'm not Simon <laughs> Cowell I don't buy in bulk <laughs> um, so fortunately David has done this because he does need it uh, you go to get started with this service you go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic you fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style simple blue jumper uh budget size and shape in your clothing needs and wants a personal stylist then sends you five items of clothing each hand-picked especially for you from our selection of 100 brands including established names and -and up-and-coming designers you try on everything at home you style it with your other items in your wardrobe must go with the blue jumper you can then pay for what you love and send back the rest for your stylist time you pay a charge of just 10 quid That's deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. And remember, you try before you buy at home. Delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Stitch Fix allows you to save time because we do the shopping for you, and you'll enjoy top styling tips from our experts. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic right now stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic let's just talk about newcastle and this deal that is supposedly on the table to buy them yeah they appear closer than ever to a takeover we'll believe it when we see it because we have been here before and involved in this process amanda staveley has been subject to a couple of bids for Newcastle maybe even three I think it is in the last few years all of which have failed and at the time of her most recent failed bid Mike Ashley spoke pretty uncomplimentarily of her so we should urge caution around these things with Mike Ashley also it's pretty well known that Ashley uh, has always been of the opinion or has always voiced the idea that when Newcastle are going to be sold, we'll all wake up one morning and we'll find out about it in a way that we didn't see coming. So let's just sort of put the brakes on for a moment. But this interest uh, is credible. Uh, it involves, as I said, Staveley and we understand Chris Mort, who formerly worked at uh, Newcastle in the early days of Ashley for a year after the takeover by Ashley in around 2007 so he's working on behalf of Staveley and they would be taking out I think a small percentage uh, minority shareholding the Rubin brothers who are among the wealthiest business people property developers in Britain and and the world uh, would be involved too and the majority shareholding 80% would go to the sort of Saudi Arabian private investment fund headed up by Prince Abdullah bin Salman. So that will bring some excitement on the one hand for the sort of level of investment uh, that that could bring because they are said to be the wealthiest private investment fund in the world, but also some pretty serious concerns over human rights records. And the feeling is that Mike Ashley will be deciding upon this offer 
pretty imminently. It values Newcastle at £340 million and suggestions are that um, the Saudi fund will put uh, a chairman in place, that Staveley's um, group would sort of run the club on a day-to-day basis. Unlike some of the previous suggestions, this one seems credible. It's just whether Ashley finally lets it get over the line because that's the key and that's the point that you made there and you're not the first person to to say this to me is that the feeling is when Newcastle are sold from Ashley's perspective it will happen publicly at least like that yeah because he likes everything to be so private yeah and there is consternation about the fact that this came out over the weekend I think it was in the Wall Street Journal Um, the latest soundings are that that will not bring the deal down there is frustration on both parts. But uh, the other thing we're told is that it's at a very delicate stage. It really does feel that this is the closest they've come to Ashley relinquishing power. There will be some investment, some pretty heavy investment, we're told. But it's not a a case of the sky's the limit in what you can do in terms of player purchasing because of these FFP rules. So the feeling is there would be more investment around Newcastle's training ground, maybe stadium and infrastructure, and a spending in the team but to a limited extent let's move on to transfers then uh let's start we'll do tottenham we'll do piontech um uh we'll see well we'll obviously do arsenal because of your arsenal fan base and how they love you um i will do chelsea as well um they don't at the moment uh, no they don't actually it's about, i've got a very amusing question to put to you in a, in a little while from an arsenal fan um uh, but let's start with Manchester United make it up as they go along transfer window, which I'm allowed to say, but obviously you have your sources. <laughs> so Manchester United fans are going to be sweating on uh, the outcome of their attempts to bolster the squad this week. And I'm afraid there is a realistic chance that they will end up with nothing from this window. That's not to say that they will definitely end up with nothing because they are still in discussions about the positions we've talked about before, central midfield and a striker since Marcus Rashford's injury. The Bruno Fernandes discussions are ongoing. There are continued problems there in terms of what Sporting Lisbon want, what Manchester United are willing to pay. Uh, Sporting Lisbon, the feeling from Manchester United is, will have to bite the bullet and basically accept that they want Manchester United's offer more than they want nothing at all in this window. And Manchester United are not going to get into a game of we'll come up, you come down, we'll meet in the middle. I think that was a feeling that I got previously, but I think they're going to stand their ground. Uh, they don't, and, and they also want to stand their ground, as I understand it, because they don't want to be seen as an easy touch in transfer windows going forward Correct. of paying whatever the asking price is for a player. Yeah, and they're particularly concerned around that for this coming summer. Now, we've talked about how Manchester United always plan from around September time uh, the previous year for the following summer. And if anything can be done in January, they'll try and do it. And therefore, their plans for the summer, they fear, will be adversely affected by them paying over the odds for Bruno Fernandes now. They fear that selling clubs will ratchet up the price that for players that United are interested in in the summer window and that will be a problem so it could happen but I don't think it's by any means guaranteed and wouldn't it just be typical of things around Manchester United at the moment if they have been in this month-long saga and it comes to nothing 
I think what a bit what would be more typical of United is to be in a month month long saga and then end up with either Igalo or Slimani on loan, which is what was rumoured last week. That would sum them up more. Actually, they're not bringing anybody in. Are they were they true those two? I don't know about those okay. particular names, but there have been a wide number of names they have been considering, and I've got no reason to discredit those reports. And we'll talk shortly about a striker that they have inquired about. Signing. Yes, because we've got two now, right? So Cavani, first of all. Yeah, so Cavani uh, was a player they inquired for. It was very clear early on to Manchester United that Cavani favoured a move to Atletico Madrid. We'll see if that develops. I think there are also some concerns about his injury record, his salary, his age, but you don't inquire for a player without knowing that. So it seems more that it was Cavani's preference to go elsewhere. Chelsea inquired about him as well, is that right? or is that Chelsea have looked at Cavani recently and in the last few years, but the issue has always been really his wages. Um, and now you have the injury questions as well with him at 32. I mean, it would be very Chelsea to sign one of Europe's best strikers about 18 months after they were one of Europe's best strikers. But I think they want to get away from that, particularly with Tammy Abraham you know, flourishing the way he is. I think they're quite cognizant of bringing in a, a, a massive European name that, that could affect his development at a time when you're still trying to tie him down to a, a long-term contract as well. And you learn from mistakes of the past. I was speaking to somebody recently who said that when Chelsea uh, were buying Fernando Torres infamously or famously in January 2011 uh, from Liverpool, his medical flagged up a a knee problem, uh, quite a bad knee problem, but Roman Abramovich and the hierarchy at Chelsea, or maybe it was just Roman Abramovich, decided they wanted that player and they ploughed on regardless. Now, you can have your debates about how successful Torres was at Chelsea but he certainly wasn't the player that he was at Liverpool. Uncanny parallels there to the signing of Shevchenko as well. Yeah, Signing despite a knee problem and and paying the cost of that down the line. Um, Just one final thing on on a chip before we go on to back to United, as we're just doing Chelsea and strikers. Mark Sugar sent two questions in. I don't know whether this is actually his online name or whether he's actually called Mark Sugar, but um, what's happening with Giroud to Inter? So Olivier Giroud and his camp are desperate for this to happen before the deadline. Um, They've got a feeling that if Matteo Politano completes his move from Inter Milan to Napoli, and there are suggestions that he's going to be undergoing a medical early this week, then that should, in normal circumstances, clear the way for Giroud finally to complete his move to Inter. I mean, one sort of separate complication to that is I heard that uh, Inter were possibly looking at Fernando Llorente because of the delay on Giroud. The other thing that Giroud doesn't know is whether Chelsea need to sign a replacement before they'll sanction his departure. So that situation's a bit of a mess. And certainly from the players' point of view, they're desperate to get it done. Yeah, and and I think the key public pronouncement here is um, about a week or so ago, Lampard said that it wasn't necessarily true that Chelsea would keep Giroud if they didn't sign a replacement, you know, that one was not contingent on the other. So given Giroud's desperation to to make this happen and to go to Inter above any other interested clubs, I, I don't think Chelsea will prevent him from going there necessarily, but it's about the terms of the deal you know, Marina Granovskaya is famed for wanting to win the deal as well as do the deal. And I think they want to come out of this window one way or another, not feeling weaker 
in terms of the squad. And in that sense, Mishi Batshuayi's recent form has been a little bit of a problem because if he'd been even slightly more reliable as backup to Abraham, Giroud might have got his move already. And it was Marina Granovskaya's determination and um, digging her heels in that actually caused some difficulty around Giroud actually joining Chelsea in the first place. That deal, which involved Batshuayi again that year and also Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, going from Borussia Dortmund to Arsenal, uh, came very close to not happening. So uh, she's extremely um, well thought of within within football, but not an easy person to deal with. And she will want things uh, done on the terms of Chelsea before letting Giroud go. Back to Manchester United and a, and a striker. We all know that Leeds have pulled off what seems a very impressive signing on loan of Jean-Kevin Augustin uh, from RB Leipzig. Now, I did quite a lot of digging around this and have established that a number of clubs were interested and keen to sign him, pursuing it um, towards the end of this process. And one of them was Manchester United. It's worth mentioning the others. Crystal Palace had been keen in the summer, Brighton recently, and also Newcastle, who we've mentioned in relation to missing out on Christoph Piontek last week as well. But Manchester United were keen. But the very clear message I got was that they, and to be fair, other clubs, were all too reactive on this, whereas Leeds were proactive from the start. They conducted what I was told was a highly impressive process. Marcelo Bielsa was absolutely key to this because the agent for Augustin is also the agent for Mendy, and Mendy credits Bielsa with being absolutely fundamental to his development during a short time together at Marseille. Uh, I think 2014 to 15, and you can see some clips of them together uh, online. And so the relationship was there, the respect was there. Leeds conducted the process very diligently and thoroughly, whereas Manchester United came to the table and others far too late and in a far too disorganised way. And it was similar to the situation I was told with um, Wasim Ben Yedda in the summer that Manchester United obviously lost Romelu Lukaku to Inter Milan or let him go and had an opportunity to bring Ben Yedder in from Seville and he ended up going to Monaco. We don't mean to dig Manchester United out here, but it's another example of business that could be done, not getting done. That said, Manchester United would argue that he he, he would probably have been one of a number of options and he might not necessarily have been right for them. But Leeds have won the day on that. Okay, I, I can't come up with any more cynical, sarcastic, weary responses about Manchester United's transfer window. But but one on Leeds, actually, because you talk about them being impressive there with Augustin. That, that backs up them being impressive in other deals as well that we're aware of. Pep Guardiola praising uh, Perveda for choosing Leeds because he gets to work with Bielsa and the relationship there. Arsenal originally sending Eddie Nketiah to Leeds on the basis of a presentation yeah. to their loans team ahead of Bristol City. When they get when they, or the perception is when they want a player and they they put the work in to get the deal done properly to appeal to both player, agent, club that's loaning or selling. Everything seems in sync at Leeds. Yeah, it is. And from people who I speak to, the credit goes largely to Bielsa, of course, but also heavily to Victor Orta, the director of football there. And yeah, not all of these transfers work out. The Inketia one didn't in the end. Um, but the process is key in terms of their presentations, their scouting, their work on the players and their families themselves. 
Nketiah was said to be very happy in Leeds with his family up there as well. Um, he met a, a girl that he's he's now with there too. So the the sort of environment that Leeds put in place for these players, the work they do to get them in, is all second to none from what I'm hearing from other clubs and people within the game. The final piece in the jigsaw, as someone uh, at Leeds put it to me, is they now need to start performing. Um, they're in a quite delicate financial situation and uh, I think it's time for them now to perform as well on the pitch as they are off the pitch and get themselves back up to the Premier League. Okay, let's deal with Tottenham next. Back to Mark Sugar, who as well as asking about Giroud to Inter, asked about Piontek to Tottenham. Is that dead? So Christoph Piontek, we've got onto him at last, um, is the subject of uh, renewed and f- and also fresh interest from clubs in the Premier League and Italy. Now, I don't know the identity of the clubs who are now holding even more detailed talks than were going on over the last couple of weeks for him, but those detailed talks are happening as we speak. There's a good chance that a deal will be done. However, no deal will be done unless AC Milan are happy with the deal. They'll simply keep him until the end of the season and then see where they go from there. And that deal is probably a bit lower than I I thought previously. I I said around 35 million euros. I think the 30 million euros mark is more realistic. Or a loan with an option to buy that will become an obligation depending on favourable conditions. And the interest that has come into AC Milan and and Piontek's camp uh, most recently, from what I hear, is on that basis a loan with an option to buy that has a good chance of turning into an obligation rather than the straight-out sale. So that's a very interesting one to watch, but unfortunately I don't have the names of the clubs reported elsewhere have been Tottenham and Chelsea. Uh, Liam might have a view on this, but I think it's more likely to be Tottenham from that perspective. Yeah, I haven't heard anything specific on Piontek just yet, but I think Chelsea will be working right until the final hours of the transfer window. We've seen this... In years past, you have to reevaluate things almost by the hour with with Marina Granovskaya. So they'll they'll keep working until the end. What I do know is that Tottenham are still hopeful of bringing in a striker. I don't know about Chelsea's level of hope, but Tottenham definitely are hopeful of bringing in a, a striker and a winger. De- um, well, Steven Bergwijn yeah. uh, for PSV is is the winger that there's a good chance of that deal happening. Got a bit messy on Sunday because. Um, he missed PSV's game and it wasn't clear if he had refused to play. He denied that on social media. We think he was in London already negotiating the deal. That's independent of the Christian Eriksen situation. Of course, he's joining Inter Milan. It's not a replacement. It's somebody that Tottenham have liked for quite some time. It's it's a different position also. Uh, and by the way, Tottenham will be getting or the fee for Eriksen, which has always been the case. So Tottenham are a bit baffled and that's why... Mourinho's comments were as they were at Southampton by this situation because the asking price has been the same all along 20 million euros they're willing to do business for Ericsson but what I do know is that Ajax are due 10% of that as his former club so uh, Daniel Levy will have to stomach losing 2 million euros from that 20 million deal Spurs could be busy because there are potential exits and I say potential because they definitely might not happen for Danny Rose which from Rose's perspective would be a loan rather than a permanent deal, unless it was so good now, the permanent deal, but we're running out of time for that. Newcastle, Bournemouth and Watford are the interested parties. Tottenham want him gone, but he will only do it if it's right for him. He wants to play ahead of the Euros, ideally, but ultimately 
if the deal is not there, Danny Rose will stay, as he said publicly, until the end of his contract. Victor Wanyama could go. It's uncertainty around Juan Foyth. Kyle Walker-Peters, heavily linked most recently with Southampton. So busy times. But the most interesting one, I think, from Tottenham's perspective, might, is whether they get that striker in. West Ham and Burnley? Looking at the same player, just to prove that we don't talk about just the top six. It's very, oh my, we've done a load on Leeds, but anyhow. Well, there is a Leeds link here because Ronaldo Vieira was sold by Leeds, uh, I think it was seven million pounds, to Sampdoria in 2018. Was it 2018? Yeah. And uh, he didn't play so much in the first season, but he is a regular this season, starting in central midfield. He's turning into a really accomplished, um, either defensive or box-to-box central midfielder. We've said that West Ham, for a long time heading into this window, were looking for a central midfielder, um, and they've got a decision to make over the next couple of days. Uh, Do they pull the trigger on a permanent signing of Ronaldo Vieira, which Sampdoria don't want to lose him, so they'll fight tooth and nail. I think they would be expecting a fee of around 20 million euros up to, or maybe a bit. they'd settle for a bit less with some add-ons. Leeds will be owed around 10% of that as well, let's not forget. And David Moyes was considering going out to watch him against Asuolo on Sunday, they got information that he wouldn't be starting. He only came on on 72 minutes because of a little knee problem. West Ham fans pointing out to me that it'd be typical of West Ham to sign a player with an with an <laughs> existing injury. Um, but I'm told. But, but the other sorry, the other mm. thing in all of this as well is that when when Pellegrini and the director of football went, then that completely changed the recruitment process at West Ham. So the recruitment process, as we're led to believe it, is basically on David Moyes and one scout. Yeah, well, David Sullivan too, the co-owner. So Sullivan has been a a point of contact on this proposed transfer uh, and he is said to be very keen to bring Vieira in. David Moyes is said to be pretty keen, um, not not fully convinced yet. And that's the case with a lot of players that David Moyes looks at. He wants to see them in person. He really analyses videos and picks picks out faults, you could say understandably. But a decision now needs to be made on this or will West Ham readdress it in the summer? The other interest, and and you mentioned it there, is from Burnley. They've been the most consistent interest in Ronaldo Vieira. They had a senior scout, Ian Butterworth, at the Sampdoria-Sassuolo match on Sunday. Uh, He's watched Vieira on a number of occasions, and it's unlikely that Burnley would make uh, a move of that level during the January transfer window. But it does go to show how thoroughly they do their scouting at Burnley. Butterworth is in charge of the midfielders, at Burnley, other personnel are in charge of defenders and forwards and wingers and goalkeepers. So it's a very organised setup there. Whereas uh, West Ham, by contrast, is far less organised. But that is certainly one that we should keep tabs on in, in the final week of the window. And finally, uh, from Moe Jr., what's happening with Arsenal, David? You've been disappointing this window. Do you feel personally you've had a disappointing window? It's slightly strange when a journalist <laughs> takes responsibility for a Well, a you, own the tra- you own the transfer window, David. This is what, you know, I saw, uh, I saw uh, um, a Football 365 today put a tweet out that just went, Ornstein, as a, as a sort of chant. You are, you are the transfer window. In relation to Manchester United, interestingly, mm. there's been, a, maybe I've transferred. Um, so, so you have to evaluate your own transfer window as you are responsible for it. Probably a mixed bag. A mixed bag, <laughs> yeah. mixed bag. Like, like yeah. most clubs. Yeah. Um, well, 
Pablo Marie is the player that Arsenal have been working on a deal for. Uh, the Flamengo centre-half, formerly with Manchester City. Um, he flew over. We saw videos of Edu arriving with him at Heathrow Airport. Um, and the suggestion is that he's already undergone a medical. However, he's flown back to Brazil amid reports that the deal could be on the verge of collapse. We're told that discussions are ongoing and that he had always planned to return to Brazil. But there are other reports suggesting that Flamengo are adamant that a deal, a permanent deal needs to take place this January for £7 million, seven million euros. I don't know the exact figure. And Arsenal were looking for a loan with an option to buy, which, as we've said for weeks now, loans or low-fee permanent transfers are the most likely option for Arsenal. So there could be a bit of a, an issue around that, but the line is that the situation is ongoing. They'd also been linked with Mikola Matvienko, the Shakhtar Donetsk centre-half, and Ukraine, who we talked about being yeah. on Manchester City's list. So perhaps that was one that Mikel Arteta brought with him to the Emirates. But I don't think that one's going to happen in January because I don't think they want to loan him out and he's not available for a low fee. So it could be a busy few days uh, at Arsenal, but like with many clubs, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to come to anything. He, he has my full support, Liam. I'm not looking to loan him out or transfer him. And, and I do have sympathy for him because it is a blooming nightmare, isn't it? D trying to work out the transfers because you'll get the point of view of the selling club, the point of view of the buying club, the point of view of agents who represent both of those clubs. There might be the point of view of the agent that represents the player, the point of view of the player as well. To try and sift through it all to work out what is actually going on in fairness to him and in response to Moe <laughs> Jr., who thinks he's had a disappointing window, it is very hard. There are so many smoke and mirrors when it comes to transfers. I, know, I understand it's the part of the job that, that people are most interested in, but I also find it the most tedious part of my job <laughs> to do. It's a minefield. I'm far more interested in what happens on the pitch. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I really do uh, admire the amount of work you get through and, and the amount of information you're able to sift through to try and make sense of it all. You're safe for the time being. Well, thanks. That's all right. Uh, right, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic to read in full all the articles from David, Liam and many more of The Athletic journalists. And by listening to us, you can get a 40% discount on subscription. 40% discount just by going to The Athletic com slash Ornstein and Chapman. All of our podcasts are completely free and the ad-free versions are available to subscribers. It is the final week of the Transfer Daily podcast, bringing you fresh lines from across the athletics. So I'm assuming, having just spoken about your love for this, you'll be on that every every day with the window closing or just on the official one of the or just on the one that officially closes the window well the thing is you need to be making sort of a, a relentless number of phone calls and so maybe I'll dip in and out or feed information into more capable colleagues. so that's a no then you're not going to be on <laughs> probably not it's a duff sell there just on the last one uh, that's it we will be back next week with the Ornstein and Chapman podcast thanks to Liam thanks to David Thank thanks you. for listening 